Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 121, Historical LARP Design. Recorded at Metatopia 2016. Presented by Moira Turkington, Kimberly Lamb, Shoshana Kessick, Elsa Henry, and Rachel E.S. Walton. This panel was also moderated by Alex Roberts. Hi, I'm Shoshana Kassak. I'm a full-time staff writer for 7C for John Wick Presents, and uh, I'm also the co-owner of Phoenix Outlaw Productions. Uh, I do a lot of historical research for the historical drift stuff that goes into 7C, and for LARP design, I go into... uh, I did a a game for the Warbirds anthology uh, called uh, Keeping the Candles Lit, which is set during World War II. I'm Rachel E.S. Walton, and... I am working on a Warbirds LARP with Margaret Trickington uh, called um, Nightingales, which is um, the nurses during World War II, and I'm also working on a game called Mars 244, The Liberation of Sisyphus, which is kind of a future historical game. (laughs) And is the reason why I suggested this panel, actually. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, I'm Kim Lam. Um, I work as a crime fighter. Ask me off panel and I'll explain that. Uh, and uh, I'm also a hobbyist game designer. Um, I'm working on a Warbirds game uh, called Blood is Thick, which is about the aftermath of the Cambodian genocide. Uh, my name is Moira Turkington. I'm the curator of the Warbirds anthology. I've written a whole bunch of games in World War II um, uh, against the grain about a historical hate strike in, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, a game about the Danish resistance, uh, game about <laughs> a number of them, let's just put it that way. A whole bunch of games, and I have a whole bunch more in development. Um, I'm Elsa Shinnison Henry. I'm a trained historian by, by academic practice, uh, where I've taught about burlesque history and women's history in the United States. But as a game designer, I wrote Dead Scare, which was about 1950s housewives fighting zombies in a Soviet engineered apocalypse where Joe McCarthy is the president of the United States. You pick which is scarier. Um, and I'm also working on a game for Warbirds at some point mm-hmm. about Great. the French resistance. Nice. Awesome. Uh, can you go hear us? Yes. Okay, good. Um, why don't we start by talking about research? Uh, what are the challenges in researching for a game specifically? Does anyone want to start? I'll, I'll take that first. Um, Our actual historian. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting because the, the problems with researching for a game are the exact same problems for researching for a paper or a book. Yeah. Um, you have to find your thread. And I think that that's a lot of what is challenging is that you have to dig through a lot of materials before you find that thread. Whether you're digging through the French Resistance, which is what I'm doing right now, and you're reading all of these biographies, and one woman stands out to you, and you go, oh, this is the story I want to tell. And then you have to read 16 books about the OSS. (laughs) Or if you're writing about zombies, and you have to research how a zombie virus would possibly have been engineered during World War II, and then how would it be distributed as a massive attack. Mm -hmm. Either way, there's a whole bunch of research you have to do, and the entire point of that first round of research is just finding the thread. Mm -hmm. The next round of research is actually doing your research. Uh, For me, the uh, Warbirds project is uh, all very much focused on telling stories that don't get told. Uh, And so that includes, it started very clearly with uh, stories about women and how they were very fundamentally part of the war effort. Uh, But as we we develop further, uh, we reach out and we say, 
at uh, Warbirds games are still pretty American-centric and still pretty pale. And so what we're looking at is to understand you know, what happened on the Eastern Front. And uh, there are women across the globe working in places. And the problem with research is uh, if you're not a historian with access to lots of academicness stuff and you don't speak other languages, sometimes you know, researching a book about... Um, about uh, one of the games that I am in early, early research and is probably several years out is a game about Yekatit 12, which is the Ethiopian-Italian Second World Second War that happened just before mm-hmm. what we consider World War II, but really was part of World War II, uh, where a um, uh, there was a mass execution of all the, inter- the young Ethiopian intellectuals of the time. And there is no English research on this. Uh, and so it's a matter of really making connections to people who have local research. Also, it's when, when, you, when you pointedly kill young intellectuals, you also kill their documentation. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's really hard to find the facts, even though you know that they do exist. Um, so it's a struggle. And so you kind of, it's easy sometimes to reach for stories you know, or stories that are regularly really documented. And if you have goals to reach out into the history and tell stories that are new, um, or at least forgotten, um, then it can be really difficult and take a lot of redoubled effort into trying to find that information. I, uh, I actually came at, at my game backwards. I have My thread is very obvious. I have a personal connection to the, the Cambodian genocide. Uh, large portions of my mother's family uh, were killed during it. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's my thread. There's my interest, right? But, um, I mean, I'm Canadian. I'm a generation removed from, removed from that. I speak English. I do not speak Cambodian or Chinese or any of these things. Um, and uh, doing research into it, um, most of Western research is focused on the Cold War aspects of it because the Cambodian genocide and all of that stuff just grew out of the proxy wars and things that happened in Southeast Asia at the time. So trying to find um, authentic stories that that are at ground level can be very difficult, even though there's a lot of research onto the higher level international politics um, and that sort of thing, and also trying to do justice to sort of the story of uh, the Cambodian genocide in a way that was authentic to uh, my, parent, uh, my parents' um, uh, Experiences, but also to the genocide as a whole, uh, was was quite the interesting challenge. Um, I, I found that sometimes textbooks or overviews of history can kind of give you little seeds, but you can't rely completely on that because. Well, I so I did a history thesis on um, the comfort women during uh, of the Japanese army during World War II, and the government specifically blocked mention of the comfort women in the textbooks. Mm-hmm. So you have like hundreds of thousands of women whose stories were never even referred to. Um, and so there's a lot of people that don't even know about their experience and there's, some of them are still alive. So it's hard to imagine like, you know, that not even being documented today. So sometimes you really have to look past um, the obvious and, and start digging for individual stories because you can't rely on, you know, the textbooks are written by people who have biases yeah even like um, I'm reading um, a book on Caravaggio and he had three different biographers in his time recording his stuff about him and they all had different opinions about him and so you see a range of like who this person is based on like these three different biographers and it's fascinating how different the story is Um, yeah so for me it was uh, I also came to keeping candles lit from a personal place. Uh, My grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, and she told me a lot of stories, and uh, I also read, you know, I I grew up Orthodox Jewish, so in our community, autobiographies and biographies are huge about the war, so I read quite a number, especially about partisans during World War II and the the fighting, because there's this mythology that Jews didn't fight, and it's a huge, like, lie. There were tons of Jews that did fight, and so, and it's not just the Warsaw Ghetto, right? There's other stories. So I I read a book called Defiance, which was made into a movie, which is about the Bielski brothers, and they talked in, like, there's a whole chapter there about women and, like, their struggles, and then I got really interested in thinking about my grandmother grew up Orthodox, my whole family is Orthodox, what's it like to be at war and try to keep Orthodoxy, and that sort of Mm -hmm. gave, like, thesis of the whole thing for me. 
I did a lot of research reaching out to, there's an organization that collected stories of partisans, especially um, Jewish and Orthodox ones. So I did research, like, going to whatever primary sources still existed, which are not that many, unfortunately, because they're passing on, and then read as much as I could. Um, it's different, the research, though, that I do, for example, for 7C, uh, because... Uh, for this, it's we're going obviously for something that's extremely historical. We're going directly to the truth of like what happened and trying to encapsulate that moment. For Seven C, you're doing research into this world and then abstracting it for another world. Um, so I like I did work on, for example, uh, Avalon, which is England, effectively. So I did tons of research for first edition and whatever was there. But then I also read up on like English history and and you know medieval history there. And and but there's a difference because you can you can change things, right? It's like having, you can morph it and change it into whatever you want while trying to stay thematically appropriate to the kingdom, which is important, trying to capture the important things that are, that are uh, to that culture, to the religions of the time, to the, to, the, to the groups. So it's two very different styles, but I've, I've had a little bit of experience in both. Interesting. A lot of you mentioned not just telling a, a historical story, but about something that you feel that was hidden or that was forgotten or that mm -hmm. was deliberately put away. Um, what's your goal? What are, you, what are you looking for, trying to accomplish when you make a game about something like that? Who wants to start? Uh, I do. <laughs> Very clearly, I do. Um, uh, in in nineteen nine, sorry, in two thousand and two or three ish, right at the early days of Wikipedia, I, I went online uh, to settle an argument, as one does, and uh, and in it, um, uh, it was about flying aces and what made a flying ace, and uh, on that, and in it, there was a list of flying aces, and uh, I just kind of glanced at it without even paying much attention to it, except that I noticed that in a red link was the name Lydia Litvak, uh, who is a uh, Soviet flying ace, the, the Soviet female flying ace uh, from World War II. And I got so angry uh, because the Red Link, uh, because it was Red Link, which means it's just another story that's not getting told. It's like, it feels like a lie, right? It feels like mm -hmm. you've been betrayed. Uh, that we were sold a story, this is for me and Warbirds, we were sold a story about Rosie the Riveter. And our, you know, it was, uh, World War II was amazing for women. It was, you know, how we got economic independence, how we started working, not like we always haven't been working, not like we always, and not like women who have been lower class have never yeah. escaped working their entire lives. Uh, um, but it, it gave us economic independence, and then we, we orderly went back into the kitchen at the end of the war, and everything was good. Um, it's a lie. It's a very big, very big lie. And it's, you know, it's partially a culturally constructed lie. Rosie the Riveter was very intentional. It was mm -hmm. made by a corporation. It was a propaganda poster. Partially an historical lie, too. Yeah, exactly. And then there are, like, ages where, like, I, I don't remember quite the era. I, I, would, I would hesitate to try and pin it on an era, but I know that there was, like, a Chinese general that was a woman where, uh, yeah. where when, in a particular in a particular era they burned everything everything that talk, talked about her to annihilate the idea that it was there and so it feels like a cultural responsibility to me to say uh, you can't erase people and 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 it tells us we have always been more than they have always led us to be and so there's a very feminist thing for me uh, and I think it extends to uh, you know, the world has always been more cosmopolitan than we have ever given it credit for. And and I hate it when role-playing game designers specifically are lazy and say, well, no, this isn't just how it was. They're, you know, the whole setting is white because, you know, this was uh, this was Norway in, uh, in the 1600s. Well, guess what? There were people of color in Norway in the mm -hmm. 1600s. You have just been too lazy to look for them. Or you have just selectively decided whose stories you wanted to tell and are reinforcing the bias that exists out there. So yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it, so I'll stop now. Mm -hmm. I, know. <laughs> I could talk for an hour on that alone, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Keep it coming. Does anyone else have a uh, thought on that? It's, it's actually kind of funny because I recently had one of those Wikipedia moments. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently working on a project that is about the American Revolution. And uh, I'm, it, I, as many people have been, I've been inspired by Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I go, I, I see somebody posting about Peggy on Twitter. And I'm like, what's going on? And I go to Twitter and I click on, on Margarita Hamilton, uh, Schuyler's link. And it's a stub. 
And you know why I'm mad about it being a stub? I'm mad about it being a stub because she was actually kind of a badass. Mm -hmm. And Margarita Hamilton, uh, rather, Margarita Schuyler, my brain is doing weird things today. You took it. Um, She she did all of these amazing things. Yes, she was married, but she also actually kind of stood up to her husband a lot. Mm -hmm. And she also, her mother was kind of an incredible badass. And so all of these women in the Schuyler family actually were really powerful parts of the revolution. And so when I see people making them into a stub article on Wikipedia, my women's history masters kicks in. And I actually kind of threw a bit of a shit fit on Twitter (laughs) and was like, no, this is not okay. Um, If you're going to be a fan of this show, then you need to accept being a fan of everyone in this show, not just the men. Jerks. So when I'm when I'm thinking about creating games, I want to make sure, like you're saying, that these women don't get hidden, and we don't just selectively choose to be excited about one part of an era. So that's kind of what I'm going after when I try to create things. Is I try to make sure that you get excited about the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, oh, oh, sorry. Um, yeah. I think for me, it was absolute def- like defiance of history, like absolute stubborn, angry defiance. Because, uh, like I was saying before, like, I grew up listening to stories about, like, the good Jews who didn't fight, and they just, like, this, like, this, like, quiet saintly thing that people had about saying, like, the poor Jews who just went off and died, and it's just, it rankled me so badly to hear these stories that there were people who fought back, and there were people who, and that's not to say that it was, like, not good what happened to other people. It's not knocking anybody. It's just saying that, like, taking only one part of the story and embracing that. And I always heard from, like, uh, people, friends of mine would be like, well, if I was in that situation, I would have fought. And I'm like, they did. There were people fighting. You just need to read different stories. So for me, um, especially, you know, reading the stories about men, I realized, like, that the stories that we weren't hearing about are the women. And in Jewish culture, like, a lot of the traditions are passed down from the women, one woman to the other, mothers and daughters, and that's super important to me um, that that be understood, and that culturally also, frankly, Judaism does not get represented in games enough. Mm. It's just not there. Like, I can count on my hand how many times you can find it, really, in my two hands, and it's it frustrated the hell out of me how many times it's tokenized and how many times it's uh, not researched well, and how it, like everybody takes what they like stereotypes as, as standard. So doing a little bit more research, it only takes a little bit more to talk to a couple of people. Um, uh, and on the other side of it is like is like you were saying, erasing certain parts of history. For example, for the sake of games, you know that it's the Game of Thrones argument. Like, oh, there's no women like in you know this stuff, so it's not going to be in my fantasy world. Well. For example, there were women pirates everywhere. Mm-hmm. So in a lot everywhere. of them. everywhere in China, in in, in uh, badass women, badass pirates. women pirates, Grace O'Malley, the pirate queen. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about these women. So when in Seven Sea, of course there's going to be women, and of course they're going to be badass. So like for me, it was like I don't care what part of Seven Sea, as long as I'm writing stuff, there's going to be women. And every part of, uh, by the way, to, to just I'm not going to like yay my company, but like every single book that I've been on so far for Seven Sea has been like, yeah, we're going to represent, we're going to have every part of it because. You can, if you want to use the excuse that you are going to make a fantasy world uh, that's based on history, so therefore you're going to accept the stereotypes. No, you're writing a fantasy world. You can warp it, you can change it, you can flip it on its head, but you can also accept that you know history isn't as easy as you've been force fed, and uh, you can use that to make a really great fantasy game. Is it possible for we jump back in for one thing? If we ignore the idea that there was out as a a demographic of people doing something that they actually did. We also ignore the fact that we are creating roles for them, and we are role players, right? Mm-hmm. So, we if we say there are no pirates, no female pirates, and we don't incorporate them, that that's a lie, and it makes me angry. But it also means that we don't make those roles for women now, and so it it's, it continue, it has a relevance, a continued relevance mm-hmm. to what we see as possible for us today, and what room we make at the table. There should be pirates, women pirates today. In fact, all the time. Yes. In fact, there are still women pirates. Yeah, exactly. Yes. There are. Yes. Uh, Rachel, you have. Oh, yeah, so I, I went to college with all these force-fed historical stories in my mind that got me excited about history, and then I came out of college being like, you know nothing, Jon Snow, about, like, history, where it's, like, it starts to dismantle, like, 
how history gets written, and it's like, wow, there's so much that goes unsaid and so many unchallenged presumptions. So it feels dishonest to not include a range of stories and experiences and only tell the victor's story or only tell you know, the, the, the stuff that's exciting and fun. Um, so there's, there's a, that aspect that feeds my passion in telling lesser-known stories. And the other side is, just as someone who loves stories, I love reading different stuff. Like, mm-hmm. there's so many games that do, you know, certain types of things. I want to play stuff that I haven't, you know, stories I haven't explored yet. And it's sometimes just a slight change to that world can make a totally different um, uh, feel to a story. Like, suddenly when you're when you're getting to play the the woman pirate who actually has a place in that world and it's like oh this is this even if if we're playing with the same tropes it feels different and it's exciting as a, as a, as a lover of stories yeah. uh, i'm just going to keep talking about myself i guess uh, <laughs> but um yeah i uh my my parents uh were immigrants into canada um that's where i'm from and uh one of the things that that a lot of Chinese immigrants do is they assimilate. It's it's a it's a thing that is consciously chosen. My first name is Kimberly because it is a name that people can pronounce. Uh, it is a name that is not threatening. It is a name um, that will fit in well. A lot of even Chinese students come in and they pick an English name. That that's that's just part of it. Mm-hmm. Assimilation is part of our survival mechanism. So I mean, I say of course I'm Canadian and this sort of thing, and I am. But there's this whole chunk of my history that doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. the parts of it that exist are just sort of this, this vague, oh, she's Chinese, she must be from China, uh, this sort of thing. And I'm, I'm Chinese. Um, my parents are from Cambodia. Uh, there's, there were Chinese people there. Uh, they typically were business owners. And if you were a business owner, you got killed. And if you were Chinese, you got killed, probably because they thought you were a business owner. Because uh, racism is different out, uh, mm-hmm. when you're not in the West. Um, but it's still there. Um, so... Uh, writing a game like this is very much my way of finding a way to accept something in my past that isn't something that's encouraged because to survive in western culture assimilation and sliding under the radar and not being different is the way to go so can I add something it's fascinating actually because so I grew up Jewish obviously I've said this three times I think but um, culturally I grew up being told that assimilation actually is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So, like, in Judaism, you don't assimilate. You get in trouble for assimilation. Like, that's a huge deal. But it's interest, what interests me is the loss of culture that seems to happen nevertheless. Uh, that seems to be, like, as you get more removed from these historical periods, um, the stories don't get passed down, and then it just narrows and narrows and narrows. And so the only way to keep these alive is to do the research and have people, re- you know, uh, repeat it. And sometimes that involves going backwards and, like, finding your, your family's history that you didn't that you didn't know or that, you know, was just not part of the understood rhetoric that you were told. I actually want to step in because I think it's kind of fascinating. When I, I converted to Judaism two years ago, and the first thing that your rabbi tells you when you convert is that you have to strip away your assimilations. Like, they say you can't put Christmas lights on your house anymore, even if they're blue and white. You can't do these things. And that's And this was from a reform rabbi. Like this is coming from a reform rabbi saying you have to take away these things because they make you look like a Gentile and you need to mark yourself as a Jew because you're a new Jew. And it was fascinating to me because it was. Like, I had to really think through which of these things were antithetical to Judaism according to the cultural things that I was doing with my family. So I, basically I just think it's an interesting interplay of how assimilation works. And, and both of those are survival strategies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. Survives by being us, the only way we can survive is by being them. Yep. Yeah. And, and, right. kind of and, the, and the part that's rough about that, right, is that the story seems to happen the same way no matter what, which is mm-hmm. if you are different than the status quo, no matter what your survival mechanism is, uh, you're not going to stay under the radar. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, the, that's the thing that like I've learned from doing a lot of research in different places is whatever your survival mechanism, if you're outside the status quo, you're going to hit the same problems and potentially genocides and horrible things mm-hmm. that happen. And so uh, unless the world changes, unless we address those things, that's not going to change. That cycle continues happening. And then the stories get buried again with the dead. And that's the really sad part. Like, not to be depressing at, at, at 9 o'clock at night, but like, you know, that's <laughs> that's really kind of where you come, like where I've come from, like researching these stories is if we don't continue telling them, the lesson 
is the same mm-hmm. and keeps repeating. Mm-hmm. And so I created my game because I wanted that lesson to stand out mm-hmm. and I wanted it to exist again. And even if it was just in one book somewhere, if one person is telling that story uh, and giving it to other people to experience, like um, uh, Keeping the Candles Lit got nominated for an Indicate Award this year, which like, um, so I got to go to Indicate. Thank you. <laughs> That's not why I said it, but yes, thank you. Um, We're but, excited and proud of you. <laughs> We're gonna um, but uh, what was great about it was I got to go to the Indicate Awards and I sat at a table. And if you have to show a, a LARP, by the way, at a digital convention, it's really hard. <laughs> All you do is sit there and talk to people all day. So literally every person who was, hi, let's talk about Warbirds. Hi, let's talk about Warbirds. And what amazed me is like talking about the different games that were, not just mine, but everybody's games, hearing each person go, wow, I never thought of that. Wow, I've never heard of that. Wow, how would I play that because I don't know how to do this? That's really exciting because now I get to see it from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why these games are so important is that you're never going to really experience these people's stories. Never. I mean, like, I could never put myself in the place of, like, a partisan who has to choose between, you know, sleeping with a man and and putting aside her sexual purity that she's kept as part of her tradition and eating, right, so that she can get extra food. I'm never going to experience that, but that's part of my game. And if a person can play that and feel, even for a second, an empathy, a piece of empathy for what was happening in that game, then I've done my job. So my next question to all of you is going to be, uh, you've talked about the importance of this research and uh, the importance uh, of these stories. What is it about working in games specifically and doing stuff in role-playing, whether it's LARP or tabletop, what's the appeal of that? What can you accomplish with that that you could elsewhere at Elsa? Like so, um, my master's thesis and the work that I did for three and a half years as a historian was running the oral history project at the Burlesque Hall of Fame, which meant that I became the custodian for around... 350 hours worth of material of stories from women who were strippers in the 1950s and 60s on the Columbia circuit. I've interviewed women who worked with Sally Rand. I've interviewed women who worked with Gypsy Rose Lee. I've interviewed women who were thrown into jail because they took off their tops. But here's the thing. Those stories aren't going to get told in a traditional academic press because no traditional academic press is willing to publish a book about strippers. This is what I learned the hard way. So instead, I think I need to make a game about them. That's eventually what I've come to the conclusion is that somehow their stories need to be told and a LARP might be where they go. I haven't yeah. quite figured it out yet. But yeah. the point is, is that this is a medium that accepts the stories that traditional academia won't necessarily Mm -hmm. recognize. So as a historian, I see it as an opportunity to educate people and tell stories that I'm really excited about, but that I also don't, I I don't see a traditional avenue for. Yeah. And I I would add, um, for me, LARP, uh, specifically LARP, but all role-playing, but for me, my heart is LARP. Uh, LARP is a gateway to empathy. And so if you are trying to get somebody to understand what it was like to be in a historical era, LARP is the perfect medium for that. And, uh, and when you are taught, many of my games are about difficult subjects, like difficult times in history, things, moments where we should be learning about it, moments that are still very relevant to the current problems of the world today. And, uh, um, and so there's, there's, how do we look at, um, uh, so one of the game that I'm currently working on that I'm, I'm bringing to uh, Metatopia to, to play test today is a game about German women who are married to Jewish men uh-huh. who, no. uh, Kim played it today, that's why she's covering her face, uh, that, that were married to Jewish men in Berlin in 1943 who had a, had a, a peaceful protest to, to, to protest the Reich against the fact that their husbands were just taken away from them. Um, and this is, a, and, and it's about the slow erosion of civil liberties over a period of 10 years, and it's very relevant to you know, a modern America where Trump could be president in a couple of weeks. It's very, it's very relevant to the Syrian refugee crisis and the slow erosion of, of, of things that happens. And it's one of those, if we didn't learn from history, let's, uh, let's, let's engage with LARP and, and empathize and maybe learn from it now. Uh, so that's part of it. And I also, I think, there is this, uh, there's this woman named uh, Samara Haley Steele, who's incredibly smart, and uh, Shana brought her to the First Living Games conference, um, and she gave a talk at that conference that I've never forgotten, and it talked about how we as role players, when we are given a blank slate, create stories we already know, 
we create we we create ideas about people we already know we create ideas about societies that we already know and we tell stories that we already know we just recombine them into new and more interesting ways of telling them and so when our all subject matter is about telling those same sets of stories, those same ideas of who we, when we go to the Campbellian world of what a hero is and can be and only ever is, uh, and my husband would applaud for me uh, for dissing Joseph Campbell. On a, on a, <laughs> I'm on a applauding panel. you for dissing Thank Joseph you. Campbell. But if, we, if, if, that, if, that is what, if that is what we think of as a story, the hero's journey is all we ever tell, then that's all we are capable of. And when I first started Warbirds, I was I was thinking that one of that the main goal was put those stories who aren't normally told out for the people who have never had their stories represented. One of the things that I've learned, and it has been so surprising, is how many people who are part of the dominant paradigm value having yes. those stories. Mm-hmm. So there are, there is two games uh, that I have I have written. One about lumberjills finding romance in the north of Scotland. Uh, and that is really sawing, dancing, and romancing and falling in love, uh, which is the strangest game I've ever written, for if you know me. And another game about the Danish resistance where there's a family determining what's happening and arguing about whether or not they're going to become involved in the resistance. And the most surprising thing about both of those games for me was about the way that men interact with them. There are men who love being lumberjills, dancing in the north of Scotland and falling in love. And there are men who loved being able to say, I don't want to be the hero in the resistance. I don't want to put my family at risk. You have told me all my life that my job is to keep my family safe and now you are asking me to resist it. And I don't want to do that, but I'm being, but it reveals how often men are forced to follow that mold. And so it's not just about the people who, I think, it's revealed to me a different thing about the world, which is nobody likes the structures that be when you really get down to it. Uh, a lot of people think they do, but when you actually get them to empathize and give them options to be different things, sometimes they breathe this big sigh like, oh, I never realized how tight I was about that mm-hmm. or unhappy I was about that. And I think that's pretty marvelous, right? It's interesting that you mentioned Campbell, actually, because... You know, one of the themes of Campbell is that there's, like, these universal stories, oh, right? Wrong. Well, I, you know, I disagree on the large part. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. But one of the interesting things that I found, you know, when at Indicate, actually, was how many people came and talked to me about the universality of the story of keeping the candles lit. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys that I was speaking to, he had heard me, he had a game across the way, and he had heard the spiel 45 times already. And he came to me on the lunch break and was like, you know, it's really interesting to me. I really want to play this game because I come from a Mexican-American background with a very heavily uh, religious family uh, that when we moved to the United States, separated from our culture because of the violence that was happening there. We fled the violence, we lost people, and then we ended up in the United States and we lost a lot of our cultural heritage. And he was like, I want to play this game with my family to explore the loss of cultural heritage, which is a universal, it seems, between a lot of cultures. And so he's like, even though I don't understand anything about Judaism, my family is Catholic, I know nothing about Jews, but I'm going to be able to connect to this thread, this emotional thread that we share between cultures, and also experience something from a historical perspective that's different. But going back to the part about, you know, why LARP is important for that, is, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories that you could, you could do movies, you can watch, you know, you can watch movie TV, whatever that's going on, go watch the History Channel, but there's something about experiential learning, and there's something about emotionally being in that moment, um, I did a little talk about this, which is everything else that you're doing, that you're consuming media, there's a mediation. There mm-hmm. is something that is stopping you from interacting directly with the material, whether that's authorial intent or the curation. medium, curation of, yeah, by the author, however it is that it's created. But LARP is an almost unmediated event mm-hmm. that you go through. Um, that where as you know, it could be on rails. It could have a lack of agency in places. But it is your choices that interact directly with the narrative, and that I think teaches you something that you carry in a very different way than if you watch it on screen, where you can turn it off, pause. You know, you can walk away from a lark, but it's a different experience, mm-hmm. um, and you have it in your five senses and carry that with you. So I work with games because it's it's a thing I like to do, so there's that, um, and that's the way I like creating things. Um, but I was thinking about it while everyone was talking, and I realized like I I have the story. It's not like it's missing. My, my mother knows it, I know it, 
the, the family knows it. And it's not like I need everyone to be able to repeat my family history to me or anything. But for me, it's really important that these memories be living memories. And all I have is a list of facts, right? And of course, my mother has, has feeling stuff about it. And when she tells me that story, that's, that's an experience, but it's very much at removes. And while, these, while the game makes a fictitious experience, it's still authentic, and that somehow makes mm -hmm. the memory alive, but breathing thing that exists. Mm -hmm. And somehow that keeps everything else alive, in my mind. Um, I mean, I agree with all of you, but um, I, I think, uh, you know, we have more access to information and stories than we've ever had at any other time. And it, it's easy to just kind of see all these things go by in the news and just glaze over. And it, it, I think it's so critical to, like, take a moment and, and, and engage with a story and I think and a lot of historical um, LARPs or games can do that where you, you sit with these stories and you um, rather than just intellectually understanding something you get to experience um, some of the challenges related to that mm -hmm. thing and, and, and for creating empathy I can't think of a better mm -hmm. a better thing and, and that you know, some of those, so many of those issues that we might engage with in historical things are still, are still, they still matter today. Um, so. We have about 10 minutes more to chat before I'd like to go to questions. Okay. Um, I guess my last question is, all the advantages of working with in LARP and with historical stuff, how do you balance allowing people to engage with the story and, like you say, make meaningful choices and have agency with the fact that things kind of do have to go a certain way to a certain extent. Um, how do you approach that challenge in your design? Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, I tend to, with the LARPs that I do, um, I make micro, I, I call them microcosm LARPs. Um, I'm not interested in addressing, like, I, I don't think I can enca encapsulate an entire war or an entire, like, experience even of, like, one battle. Uh, for me, it's about uh, narrowing it down to the thematic that I want and giving it to a small group of people so that they can experience what that is and that on the microcosm reflects the macrocosm of it. Um, so it's it's impossible, I think, for me to to say I'm going to you know show the whole World War II, but if I can narrow down this, this story doesn't have an exact ending. We know sort of where it's going to go, but it doesn't have an exact ending. There's a lot of myriad opportunities for agency. Um, you know, I've played. I played in a couple of uh, free form LARPs. There was one called the the Last Hour, which is basically about freedom fighters, and you're in prison, and you know that you are going to be executed at the end of the hour, and that's on rails. Like you know where it's going. Um, that doesn't change the experience of it being intense. It's like about the journey. You know, they said that that's you know, it's about what's going to happen as you get there. Um, but you have to sort of decide. I think you know how much room wiggle room do you want to give people. And being really transparent upfront about that experience, mm -hmm. so like telling people that yeah, you're going to be in this in this situation that might be on rails at the end, but as long as the players understand that, um, I think that it, it it's more of a it can be more of a draw than a drawback. I think um, because people want to know what they're getting into, but it can also let them appreciate that moment that they're having. I feel like there's this modern glorification of the I don't know how it's going to end. Like people used to tell the same stories over and over yep. and over again because that was the point. Like the point was to to not to know how it went so that you could really enjoy how it was presented and what was happening in the moment and and the tensions and and that sort of thing. And I, I really like that. Um, and I don't think we enjoy it as much as we used to. So I think there's a uh, oh this might get me in trouble. Uh, so I think that when we th when we talk about traditional role playing games, where we think about like going on an adventure or doing a thing or being superheroes or like all those kind of things, uh, we're putting emphasis in those stories, in those kinds of games, uh, on what I can do because it, it's all about the story is about how I impact the world. Um, that's not every kind of game, and it's not the desire or design intent for every kind of game. And I think that in, I, don't, I won't speak for everybody's games for sure, but I think in my games, there's two sides of things. One is, there is agency, but because the focus of the game is not, how do I change the world? It is, what meaning do I make of the situation? 
and the in a drama, especially a four-hour tightly constrained drama that may be on the rails, the meaning of what's being made is the important part. When you go watch a two-hour drama movie, uh, the meaning is the thing you walk away from, not who necessarily made what action. It's how it made you feel and how it made the relationships change. And many of most of my games relationship dramas. And so there's there's that part. I think we look at agency. I think agency design matters. And I think we say agency is this critical part and it has to be part of every role-playing game. When I'm like, no, agency needs to be part of the role-playing games that demand agency of a player from a choice perspective or from a meaning perspective. Because there's a lot of games that give you lots of choice about what you can do in the world and give you no choice about what meaning you make in this course of the story. And then there's the second part, which is about historical emotional historical accuracy where uh, we had this big discussion this morning about it because I have a very tightly constrained uh, game that goes through a period of 10 years and there are things you might let go there are, there are priorities you make in every design for your design capacity and that includes how closely you hold to the historicity of your game so it may be this thing happened on this date and if, if I keep hold of that, that's a good thing to retain historicity. If I let go of that, will it allow meaning to emerge better? And if I let go of that, is it being truthful, emotionally truthful? Is it honoring the people who I'm talking about? Is it doing the right thing for the course of the game? So I think those two things are really like, what's your design agency? And what's your emotional accuracy in the historic honoring the historical time that you're playing um so i think i've been thinking about this and i'm going back to this movie that i loved when i was in middle and high school and it was a two vhs tape film about that was based on les miserables except that it was made by a frenchman who said les miserables in world war ii and it is one of the most intense and beautiful storytelling experiences that I've ever watched because I, I remember the ending so clearly of the first disc or the first video where they're trying the, the Jewish characters are trying to escape over the Alps and you just hear gunfire start and it stops you in your tracks. I remember literally reaching out to like grab the TV screen because I was crying you can retranslate historical stories, or you can retranslate stories themselves through historical periods. So I, I think that there's value in taking these things and replacing them, and there's value in taking a story and placing it in an era, as long as you stay true to the tension of that era. If you're going to tell Les Miserables during World War II, and you don't deal with the Jewish occupation, I mean, the Nazi occupation of France. My brain is fried today. It's okay. Um, or the Jews who are leaving France to get away from that occupation, then you have failed your story. But if you use the tension inherent in the period, then I think that many things come into focus. So that's why I do historical storytelling, because even if you already know the ending, the experience of that tension is what drives the story. And I think... It's important to remember that throughout history has always been as nuanced as our world is now, mm -hmm. and we tend to be like, "Oh, that's not historically accurate." Like, I mean, I'm researching Regency England, and um, you know, obviously homosexuality is a big taboo subject at the time, and if you were openly gay, obviously, or somebody found you, you would be strung up probably, and. Uh, but there were, but if you if you were to play such a game and be like, okay, we're not going to have homosexual characters because that's not historically accurate. <laughs> if you look under the surface, right, there's Molly houses where men would go uh -huh. to have relationships and coffee houses, and and those are incredible stories and they exist and there is and they are historically accurate. <laughs> so it's like it's there. There's always a nuance there, and so I, I think it's it's also about telling the stories that we want to play and if we want to. If we want to explore those stories, there is there is history backing it up, too. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I, I used to tell this to my students, and I say the same thing as a designer, historical accuracy is only what you make of it. 
like historical accuracy might be badly researched and you just read the one book. And historical accuracy is only what everyone else in history has made of it. Uh-huh. That's right. 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 I mean, if, especially, you know, history is written by the victors. It's always going to be, you know, washed in the, um, the context of the dominant society. Um, so even if you're saying, like, it's not historically accurate, there could be the 15 people that that's not true for, mm-hmm. that, that the story has been lost forever. And if it's only 15 people, that's still a story that deserves to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites is a movie about a rabbi who went into the Wild West and because they're like, there are no Jews in the Wild West. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a comedy, but it's like the first part of the movie is there practically no dialogue by the main character because he only speaks like German and nobody in the West understands a word he's saying. And so he goes out West and they're like, who is this crazy person? Is he Amish? And they're like, no. Uh, and so it's like a fantastic story about how he goes like and embeds himself in the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Like, these stories did exist. There were Jewish pirates. There were Jewish, like, in the Wild West. There's, um, they founded in Mexico an entire uh, graveyard full of a uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish graveyard. that they're One like, of the oldest Jewish settlements is in Kerala, India. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, where, where are these people, and how did we not know about this? They, we, things have always been more complex than we understand. And even if the dominant narrative says that's not true, um, when, is, when is it too little to tell the story? If it's even one person... Of an amazing story. How many one amazing people, Amelia Earhart, you know, the unsinkable Molly Brown, like how many people have we heard these stories about? Oh, yeah, there were 50 of them. Isn't, isn't their story worth telling, telling also? Like, yeah, you just have to find them, and they're oftentimes really hard to find. Yeah. Um, does anyone else have closing comments before we go to questions? Make historical games. We want to read them and play them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially if it makes me cry. If, if you tell me this game will make you cry, I'm in. It makes me think. That's how that goes. Anyone else? Um, do we have questions from the audience? Yes, over here. Um, I'm afraid this is going to leave some of you out, so I apologize. But some of you talk about these amazing uh, small stories that you don't, like, you don't have nearly the time to do. So how do you find those? Where do they come from? Uh, a lot of reading. Uh, you come across them like I I might read I might read a whole book and I know the moment I stumbled across the story I need to tell uh, so against the grain is about the historical hate strike in Baltimore Maryland and it, basically the the idea of this story is uh, we tell the story of Rosie the Riveter and her we can do it uh, and and all these women finding economic independence on the home front went into work one day and the first African-American woman who was assigned to the crew, they went on a, a strike and said, you can't work here. Like they're, they're on the verge of saying, I am free to make my money and be my own whole person, and, but you can't because you're different and we don't have segregated facilities. When I found, when I, I read, I was going through like three books and just kind of reading the general history to understand what my bomb girl's lark was going to be about. And I read that story, and all the bomb girl lark went away. And that was the only story I was interested in talking about, because it sank. There are some, I don't know, it, it, this may be only a me thing, but in my head I read a story and it sings, and it needs to be told, and it will not leave me until it gets told. That, that's what I was going to yeah. say, is that like there are certain stories that jump out at you. I, I mentioned the 350-hour archive. Some of those stories I'm never going to be able to use because they're just not interesting. Yeah, or even remembered. Or remembered. Yeah. But I have one story about a troop of all Asian women in San Francisco who went outside for a smoke break during their show and came across a dead body that was just in the alleyway that had been dumped there. And Frank Sinatra was in the bar. And they didn't know what to do. And I'm not going to tell There's you. There's a whole LARP in that right there. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what happened because I'm probably going to make a LARP about yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But there's like racism. It's got to be like waiting on Frank or. Yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there were serious racism issues yeah. going on. They were terrified. Like they, when they told me the story, it was the first time they'd spoken about it in 30 years. Yeah. And it's nine women who were going. So we've never talked about this to an outsider before, but since since we're probably going to be gone in about five years, you can tell it once once we're out. They're, they've sadly all passed away, but now I get to actually share this history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there was I, I often come across weird moments in other people's fiction. 
that inspire me. So I don't remember what movie this was from or TV show. But um, so I pitched Mo another game besides keeping the candles lit, which she told me this one's too dark. Let's go with something else. You remember this? I don't remember being dark. I think it was like too abstract. Or Maybe yeah. it was about um, it was about uh, German comfort women who were basically you know who were taken by the Nazis as like mistresses, but they weren't really given oh, the option oh, okay. of being mistresses. So they were mistresses, but really they were kind of slaves, which was really rough. And I came up with that because I was watching a movie about the liberation of, like, Germany, right? And it was like, yeah, everybody's happy. And then in one of the scenes is they were dragging women out into the street and shaving their heads. Oh, shaving their heads. Shaving their heads. To to disfigure them because to show that they should be disfigured because their beauty was what attracted the Nazis. And so, like, these poor women, like, were running for their lives or being, like, turned on by their neighbors. Um, And so, like, that moment just got me right here in the stomach. And it's those stories. The moment that you, like, hear something or you read something that just hooks you right in the gut. And they're they're often footnotes in other stories. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Oh, just that it, it, it takes some digging sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, you find that initial interesting thing, and sometimes the stuff to back it up is out there, but it's not... Like, you might have to get, like, interlibrary loan to, like, get <laughs> obscure books that aren't on the internet yet. Um, I, I, I want to find, read up more on, on Molly Houses, but the best book I found is, like, $70, and I'm like, oh, I can help you with this. So, <laughs> it, it's like... You might have to do a little bit of digging. It's not all on the internet, unfortunately. Talk to your local librarians. Yes. Like, seriously, yes. make them your best friends. They will help you. And depending on the era, talk to us. Talk to other people online. Yep. There's lots of us who are really interested in historical stories. Mm-hmm. And we do a, a crap ton of reading. And and so, and frankly, it's a bit of addictive. So if you're looking <laughs> for something, ask for help. Yeah. I, I want to get some more questions. That I can hear. Yeah. Um, what is the status of historical art? So I do have a I have a LARP that's being used in a classroom. Uh, so I, I I did this ballsy thing and over easy thing, and I went to uh, I went to festival with a game uh, that was about the Danish resistance. So I went to Denmark to tell them about their history. <laughs> uh, it was uh, a festival is kind of a, a ballsy design convention yes. anyway. So uh, I decided I was going to do this and. Uh, and I wrote this LARP, and uh, one of the one of the people who were there playing contacted me afterwards, and they took the LARP and broke it into pieces and made it an edge LARP, uh, and it's currently being used. Crazy, this breaks my brain. Currently being used to teach the Danish resistance to grade ten year olds in high schools in Denmark, or at least one high school in Denmark. Uh, so there's a lot of possibility, and there are um, there are. Um, there are whole schools in the Nordic yeah. countries that are dedicated to edulark as the the only means of education. There's a place called the Osterskov Efterskol. I can give you <laughs> I can give you the actual information online to look it up. Whose entire curriculum is taught through LARP. Everything from their physical education, their mathematics, their history, everything taught by LARP. It's a fascinating. And if you're ever in Denmark, they will tour you through the building and tell you how they do it. Uh, yeah, there are also extra outside of schools, museums, uh, you know, mm-hmm. places like yeah. that. Um, people are talking to me now about doing keeping candles lit at the Showa Foundation, and at, uh, at yeah. You didn't tell me this. Uh, no, I was going to tell you okay. later. And uh, like, and they approached me at the at, at Indicate that they want to like take this to, uh, to to clubs that are talking about World mm-hmm. War II, how to explore it in a more hands-on mm-hmm. way. So outside of classrooms, uh, the education possibilities go on. Mm-hmm. So it is nine o'clock, so I want to give you people opportunity to leave if they need to. Do any of you have any place to be? I think, uh, it looks there like there are other people yeah. coming yeah. into the room. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we should, we should leave. Um, you should come and chat with these ladies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I really regret not coming earlier because this is like, fantastic woman here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well,